and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hello, everyone. Welcome back for our anniversary episode of Challenges That Change Us. Can you believe that it has been 12 full months since our very first episode? I still remember that day like it was yesterday, sitting in my tiny little office in the gym, wondering if even one person would listen. I want to take this moment to do a massive, massive shout out to each and every single one of you for being such legends and showing up every week. Some of you have listened to one episode, some of you listen to many, and a lot of you have shown up every Monday to listen to every week. And I just cannot express my gratitude and appreciation for each and every single one of you. It has been such an incredible experience. Today I tell my story. So many of you have asked me, when will I do an interview? What is the backstory of challenges that change us? How did I get to where I am today? I want to share my journey with you all. It is something that I've tried to do for many years and I've never had the words all the courage. I would love to say that this time was easy, but the truth is it was overwhelmingly hard. I have so much respect for every guest that has come on before me. Telling the world your most vulnerable moments is really tough. My incredibly supportive editor and publisher, Sam Blacker, will be doing the interview. A massive shout out to Sam. Thank you, Sam, for holding my story and walking the mile with me for these last 12 months. I could not have done it without you. My reason for speaking out today is to advocate for all the survivors out there that do not have a voice or cannot tell their story. I want to help empower others who are recovering from complex trauma and family violence. As a child, all I wanted to know was that there were people out there who had lived or were experiencing similar things and they were doing okay. I remember reading a book when I was about 13 named The Boy Called It and thinking, wow, other people are going through what I am. As a child, I was so scared the only future for me was rehab, life on the streets or jail. A study has found that 80 to 85% of women in Australian prisons have been victims of incest or other forms of abuse. 85%. That statistic is too high. From a very young age, I set out on a life's mission to help reduce and hopefully one day stop family violence in Australia. For years, I wanted to tell my story to help other children and survivors of sexual assault. In order for me to tell my story today, we have comprehensively researched what I can and cannot say publicly. Over the past decade, I've spoken to lawyers, police, specialists, detectives, because part of my story, some of the abuse happened in another country and the police have told me, as it stands today, I cannot charge for the incidents. The country where it happened will not extradite for one victim. They need multiple victims. That is mind-blowing in 2023 that this is still the case. Without being able to charge, I am unable to identify people in my story. I can talk about the events, but not name the people involved in my childhood trauma. What that means for you as a listener is that I cannot be too descriptive And at times, it may mean that you feel like you're lacking some context. I also want to let you know that the timeline of my story may jump from childhood to adulthood and back again. It's hard to describe decades of abuse in a linear fashion, 
On top of that, like so many trauma victims, I had repressed memories and huge memory gaps. What memories I do have are scattered and they often surface at different times and at random points in my life. As it stands in Australia, many perpetrators of sexual abuse are not being convicted. Victims are kept silent. Families live in shame and too often victims are not believed when they tell their story. Victims are too little to have language around their story. I am a perfect example. I did not tell my story for over a decade. As you know, in the beginning of every episode, I give a trigger warning and let you know what we discuss so you can make the decision for yourself if this is the right episode for you today. Sam and I discuss repeated, ongoing and interpersonal trauma. We discuss sexual abuse, violence, depression and self-harm. If you'd like to talk to someone about your experience, you can call 1-800-RESPECT, Bravehearts on 1-800-272-831 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. For anyone that knows me, I tend to skip over detail very easily when I'm telling stories. So I want to mention a few things that might help you as you listen to this one. My husband's name is Greg otherwise known as Flinny, and I have three beautiful children, Jess, Katie, and Georgie. I now live the most incredible life. I am loved and I love. Three words that I think of to describe my life is safe, stable, and connected. I hope you all take something away from this episode. All right. So my name's Sam, producer, editor for Owls, and We've got a lot of things to go through and a lot of them are going to interconnect, interrelate. Some things at an older age for you will only make sense after we hear other facts. So there might be a little bit of jumping around, but we're going to try and go as linearly as possible. We're also going to have to redact some facts because some people who are involved cannot be named for legal reasons, which are also just so complex. Now, I'm joined by Ali. How you doing, Al's? Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Now, to kick things off, you always ask this question, but I thought we might make it your turn for once. So, what animal would you describe yourself as and why? Well, it's actually pretty funny because about seven minutes ago, I was like, oh, my God, he's going to ask that question. I've never thought about it. Honestly. And so then I was on speed dial to everyone, my husband, my sister-in-law, my friends. And I was like, what animal would you use to describe me in seven minutes whilst getting my lunch and coming back for this interview? So I came up with an alley cat. And the reason why I'd say an alley cat is because I can really like people when I want attention and when I'm thinking about them and I can survive on the streets. Like I can walk in this world no matter what's thrown my way. I definitely have nine lives. But the part that people often don't see is that I have this really strong innate, I will go at it alone and I will defend what I need to defend. So I think of an alley cat. Now that is definitely not what I got from everyone else, not even remotely close. So I'm just going to give you a list of things. Yeah, do it. The hurricane, a kitten on speed, a monkey that talks a lot, a goat, loads of energy, can thrive under shit conditions, will eat anything, Loyal and will go crazy if pissed off. Kind, messy, talks a lot. A good listener, not sure how those two go together. Intrigued by other people. A 90% girl, which is definitely true. I I work really hard for the first 70 to 90% and then I opt out. And determined and hyper fixated. So according to everyone else, I'm a kitten on speed and I'm really fast paced. I talk a lot and I'm a good listener. And according to me... (laughs) I like people and I'm kind of angry and, you know, defend my turf. I mean, it depends (laughs) at what point you come across the kitten on speed because I think the anger could come there as well. (laughs) (laughs) So true. So, yeah, I think it sounds like you're on the same page as them. They're just describing it a little differently. What do you reckon? Yeah. What would you say? You've known me for like eight months now. Yeah, that's a very, very good question. I wasn't expecting to have it turned back on me. I mean, when you said alley cat, I was immediately like, yeah, I I get that. Like tough, can get through a bit of a fight if necessary, independent, but also dependent. 
I think if you get a, I think that's the thing I see cats as is generally is like independent but dependent, yeah. depending yes. on what time they're at. So I think that says a lot about you. But I think what we're going to hear from you today is going to make a lot of that maybe make a lot more sense. <laughs> Why I have nine different personalities and nine lives. Mm, so <laughs> we've already said this is going to get quite heavy and, you know, there's a lot to get through and a lot of that does start in childhood. But before we get, you know, just jump in feet first and, and get our head under the water, let's start halfway with your childhood. But can you tell us anything positive you remember from your childhood? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, the first thing that comes to mind is my mum. My mum loved me unconditionally and constantly reinforced that message. She used to say things like, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter where you are. I will always love you. And I just hope that I can give that same gift to my children because it was my mum's unconditional love and her nurture and her warmth that has gotten me. It's a huge part of what has gotten me to where I am today. I also grew up in a very privileged environment. I kind of describe my life and my childhood as privilege and pain. The privilege part was all the incredible opportunities that came across my path my parents both valued private education. And what that meant was I was in an environment that had good role models. I had teachers that believed in me and believed in a future. They had no idea what was going on at home. And so they just constantly helped me think about what what is possible. They helped me dream. They helped me learn the strategies and the skills that I needed to be able to go out into this big, wide world. The other interesting and fun part of my childhood was that I had so many different experiences. We lived rurally. We had properties, cattle, horses. I had every animal under the sun. We lived in cities, so I got to experience that life. We lived at the beach. We lived abroad. We lived in different states in Australia. And what that meant was that I got to meet so many people, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people on my journey. I met people in the streets. I met people in jails. I met people on tractors. I met people at the edge of the ocean. And humans are remarkable. I got to hear their stories, what happened in their life, what was going on for them in that moment what fears they had, what hopes and dreams they had, what their regrets were, what they're passionate about. And this is one of the reasons that I'm so fascinated in human behavior. Let's now go to the start. Trigger warning again. We'll give one in the intro, but this is just a trigger warning for uh, abuse and also for a lot of other stuff, else. what would you say we need to include? Yeah, I think it's a trigger warning for abuse, but also for we are going to describe some of that abuse. So if anyone has experienced abuse in the past and they don't want it to kind of come to the forefront, then they might skip this part of the episode, which we'll have in the introduction. Okay. Well, with that in mind and that sort of explained as well, where do you feel comfortable starting this story? On the outside, my life was rosy. I mentioned I went to private schools. I always had food on the table. My family drove really nice cars. I played every sport under the sun, rode horses all over the state. I had loads of friends. What people didn't know or see was what happened behind closed doors, the repeated ongoing and extreme trauma that I endured for two decades. My earliest memories are from about the age of five where we moved overseas and during my time living over the air, I experienced two years of sexual abuse. This trauma was followed by decades of repeated and ongoing physical, emotional, and psychological trauma. My childhood trauma impacted on me in many different areas. My memory, my identity, my sense of belonging. I pushed my memories down so hard that I developed what's known as repressed memories. These are memories that you unconsciously forget. They generally involve some kind of trauma or deeply distressing event. And I only started to recall my trauma at 16 years of age. 
And then again, only six weeks ago, I started to remember new information that involved even more people being in the room throughout my sexual abuse. I've said to my husband for years, I had this sense that there were more people in the room, but I could never see them. I could never make out their faces. It was always just like blur. And for decades, it was only ever a feeling. And now I can see their faces. The problem with repressed memories is you think, did that really happen? Like, did it happen that way? How could it? How could I not remember? What if it didn't happen? You know, I have a letter stating some of the stuff that happened to me and, you know, it, there was a lot in there that I knew and there was stuff in there that I can't remember. And that was odd, like looking at that letter and reading information that happened to me and thinking, God, I don't even remember that. There's no memory. And then these other memories come back. Like it's hard. It's really hard. I don't think we talk about it enough. Mm. So when we're talking about this abuse in particular, you said it started, what you can remember, was it from when you were around five? Mm. One of the things that any, or not anyone, but a lot of people that have experienced sexual assault, your body remembers. Like you may not have the words to describe it, but things like now when I hear footsteps of someone coming down the hallway when I'm in bed, my body freezes. Or if I hear the fridge open and someone get a drink out, I feel my body freeze. Now, I don't have any memories around those two things, yet I have such a large physical response to that. And that's often what can happen for people that have survived sexual assault is they know it happened, it's a bit grey, but they have this whole lifetime sometimes of symptoms and things that happen and it's not until you start to patch it together later on that you think, oh, no wonder that happened or no wonder I did that or no wonder, like I always talk about my crazy 20s and now I know why. <laughs> like there was a lot of a lot of abuse there, you know, within my four walls and then that was the sexual abuse component. There was other abuse there, you know. There were times where I saw my animals killed in front of me. There were times where I had chemicals sprayed in my eyes, parts taken from my car so I couldn't leave the property. I was left at a caravan park with no food or anything and I had to go around knocking on different caravans and ask them to give me some money or some food. I was, yeah, not very old at that stage. You know, one of the memories that I strongly have is right before my year 12 formal, I had gotten all dressed up and I was super excited and before I walked out the door, someone smashed the camera in front of me and said, you're not pretty enough to have photos. You know, like for a year 12 student, like people talk about how different a violence affects different people in different ways. For me, the verbal stuff, the stuff that I got told, like I'm lazy, I'm selfish, I'm a dead shit, you'll never go anywhere in this world, like that stuff is the stuff that still strangles me today. Not so much being punched, not so much being made to have sex. It's the words that echo throughout my whole life and have become my inner critic inside my head. Like anyone that knows me, when we talk about, you know, the alley cat or the goat or the kitten on steroids, you think about it. I'm lazy, so what do I do? I get busy. You're a dead shit. What do I do? I go get a couple of degrees and own three companies and have an international podcast. You're no good. So then I focus on how do I be good in this world? Like everything that I got told, I kind of embodied in my soul and then fought against it for the rest of my life and was like, I'm never going to be that person. You can tell me that, but I'm never going to be that person. But I still think that on a on a daily basis, I think I'm lazy. And it's crazy. I do half Ironman and before I got sick, which is another part of the story. Lazy is not a word many people would use to describe me, yet it's a word I use all the time to describe myself. Mm. And I mean, I, th I think we jumped over a, a few pretty big things just then. Like you mm. mentioned a few things in passing. We, you know, we're, we're tackling the, the sexual abuse with a bit of soft touch to be careful there. But you mentioned, you know, animals being killed in front of you. Is that something you're comfortable sharing in a bit more detail? The thing that I will share, and that's kind of what I'm saying, Sam, like a lot of people when they talk to me, they, they hear the event and they think, God, that must have been tough, right? Like when you hear that, you think how did, what happened and how. But for me, it was the feeling. It's that feeling that you're walking on eggshells and you never know whether you're going to get a cuddle or you're going to see something get killed, or you're going to get punched, mm. or the camera's going to get smashed, or you're going to have to fall asleep in a schoolyard for the night. Like for me, it's not so much the incidents. And so for me to try and remember the events, I've blocked them so hard from my mind. I have like 
a flash. It's the feeling that stays with me. It's the memory of how I felt in that moment and how scared I was and how vulnerable I was and how I used to just sit there and think, what's happening in everyone else's home? Like, is this normal? I actually said the words to my husband the other day within the last three weeks, did anyone ever try and have sex with you when you were little? Like, I know that. I've worked in therapy, but I still, that little girl inside me still had to ask that question. Is this normal? Like, is this the way it was meant to be? Is this everyone's experience growing up? And that's one of my really strong whys coming on here today. I'm already crying. Um, Mm. Coming on here today is that I want to, first and foremost, stop family violence in this country. Like if I can play a part in putting a stop to all family sexual and domestic violence in this country, I am 100% on board for that in whatever shape and form it looks like. You know, we've touched on a few things there. Let's go into your living situation when you were a kid. What was the environment? As I mentioned, I grew up with like some really exciting things and lots of variety in my life. You know, we lived in Australia, overseas, lots of different states. I went to so many schools, met lots of people. I learnt three different languages, a couple of different instruments. You know, there was so much richness in my childhood. I had a couple of brothers and I actually had a little foster sister that came to live with our family for about six months. Uh, My parents were foster parents and it's from the outside. Someone from the outside looking in in my world probably thought this girl's confident, outgoing, vibrant, has a great family. You know, she's got lots of opportunity, lots of privilege. But as we know, so often we don't really know what's going on in someone's lives or behind closed doors. But I lived in fear and shame nearly every day. The abuse didn't happen every day. It didn't even happen every week, you know. I would almost say that it only happened for me personally maybe from what I can remember a few to maybe a couple of handfuls of time a year. But the problem with it for me was that when when it happened, it, it ended up, so bad that the outcome was extreme. So instead of it like just being little bits all the time, I mean the the verbal criticism came at me all the time, but the big kind of events, the big events where things would happen that have really been edged in my memory forever only happened a number of times throughout the year and things would result in me having to, I remember being in the middle of winter, where I lived it snowed and I'd be sleeping down in a schoolyard, you know, those little tunnels and I'd be sleeping in the schoolyard thinking like, this is the safest place for me right now. I remember one day having some glass and I think it's probably the only time I've tried to cut, but I was like, I just need people to understand how much pain I'm feeling on the inside. Like how can no one see how hurt I am? Like how can I go to school and everyone think that I'm, I have so much potential? You know, I played in the so many of the top sports. I was good at school. I played musical instruments. But how can no one see that little girl inside me that is so unsafe and so vulnerable and living with this on a daily basis, living with the fear, walking on eggshells, constantly thinking I can't do this because something might happen. The way I describe my life is that I, in where I'm meant to feel the safest, like where with the people I'm meant to feel the safest with, was a nightmare. I was living in one of the worst nightmares you can imagine. And how can you learn to trust How can you learn to believe that other people are healthy and normal and not going to hurt you, you know, when that's your experience but within your walls? So when that sort of stuff was happening, when you were living, you know, with that that fear, that lack of trust, you were sometimes having to sleep in the snow, how old would you have said you were then? Oh, that was when I was in my teenage years, maybe 13, 14 by then. I got stronger as I went on. So people would have described me back then as tenacious and the person that stood in front of a lot of the violence. So I was the one that was like, this is not okay. Like my whole life I knew it wasn't okay. Other people didn't know that. Other people that experienced abuse didn't know that what was happening wasn't normal. But I had this really strong fire in my belly that was like, this is fucking bullshit. Like this is not how it's meant to be. I didn't know anything more than that, but I just knew that there was a different life out there. And so 
like from a very, very young age, as young as I do have memories, I remember like standing up, like my chest puffed out, my like, you know, just come at me, like come at me, do what you want to do. You can hurt me as much as you want to, but you cannot touch my mind. Like you you can do anything to my body, but you are not going to touch my mind. You get no control over that. And that's why I just got smarter and I applied myself and I studied human behavior and I watched every move that people did. And I was like, if they raise their hand this way, it means they're getting cranky. If they step to the left, it means that something's about to happen. And I just lived with observation of people so that I could try and avoid as many of those situations. And then I ran away from home. Like, you know, I'd run away and whenever I knew something was going to get worse. How often would you say that happened or had to happen? Like I said, my memories are blurred, but if I wanted to give an answer, I'd say once a week, (laughs) maybe once every few months. I ran away a lot. Mm. Yeah, I ran away a lot. Not so much run away as you had to escape. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, once I got to uni, I, I... just left my old life behind. Mm. Now, we've talked a bit about repressed memories. You just mentioned it then, you know, that there's a lot of that memory's gone. But you started having some of those come back in your teenage years, didn't you? What, what was that like? Because a lot of us have no experience with memory repression and it coming back or anything like that. Can you sort of describe and explain? I was sitting in an English class, I think I was in year 10, and we were looking at a book and something in the book had information about family sexual violence. And I just remember getting this massive flashback, like a lightning bolt and this vision in my mind. And I was like, what is that? What is that? And I was like, hang on a second. That doesn't make any sense. And I felt really sick for the rest of the day. I felt really off kilter. Caught the school bus home and I went to my friend's house and a massive shout out to him because I don't know what would have happened if he had turned me away that day and he did everything but turn me away. He supported me 110% and I just think sometimes that very first person you tell about sexual abuse in particular is so critical to your recovery and that healing work. You know, 33% of what happens to you, the event, kind of is 33% is that, but 33% is how you integrate it into your world and 33% is how people respond to you when you first tell them, you know, that that working in therapy, that's kind of in my head what I've learnt over the years. So when I got to his house, I knocked on the door and his mum answered the door and she saw me in tears and she's like, oh, my God, come in. And I told him, I said, I've just had this memory come back. And by then more memories were starting to come back, but fragmented. Like like I remember the body parts. I remember some actions. I remember the room. I remember me being on my knees. I don't remember much more than that. And he said, we need to go up and we need to talk to some people about this. And so he gave me a huge cuddle and... We went and that was the first time. That was my first time of telling. And after that, there were some more memories. There was that letter I spoke about where they wrote to me and told me some of what happened and reading words on a page that says, this happened in the bathroom. And I'm like, I have no memories of the bathroom. I can't even remember what our bathroom looked like. I can't remember the colors on the wall. Like no memory. I have no memory of the house other than this one room. So we lived there for years and I just remember one room. I remember there was a bed. I remember there were feet, you know, like that's kind of how my memory came back. Mm. I mean, it sounds like life and your childhood and your teenage years was already hard. You're having to escape. But how did you go with then having those memories come back in that moment, in those years? So this is the part of the story that unfortunately there's lots of it I can't speak about because it will definitely identify the people involved in my story. What I can tell you is what happened for me personally afterwards and I went off the rails. Like I became really self-destructive. I started smoking. I started drinking. I started skipping school. I, For my HSC, I wrote nothing on two of my exams. I have no idea how I got into law because for one of my exams, I was drunk. And for the other exam, I just wrote nothing because I was like, I don't care. Why should I do anything here? Went to uni. I became an alcoholic. People and ugh, those that are listening that were at uni with me, you may not, you may not see it this way this is how I saw it was people saw me as like coming out 
fun, you know, at the pub, always drunk. But maybe what they didn't see was that I was at the pub every single night. And then I'd go to someone's house and keep drinking. Or I'd stay for staffies and keep drinking. Like the amount of 6 a.m.s that I did throughout my university degree, which a lot of people do that, but just not seven days a week, 365 days a year. Like I drank like it was the only thing I was good at. I had no idea how I got through that degree. Then I went traveling. Like I escaped. I had boyfriends and I'd push them away. And, you know, when I think about it, I think about it was almost like a test. It's like how hard can I push you to see if you will come back? Like how much can I just say, no, I'm done, I'm out of here, I'm checking out of this relationship and see if you'll hang around because I just didn't trust anyone, no one. I travelled around Australia and I got into drugs and I just never stayed in one spot for very long at all. Like I just – but – The key to this was I continued to study. So that piece that was like I got smarter in my brain, I studied throughout all of this, like all of it. I studied remotely. I studied from uni. I went, I wanted to do forensic psychology and I moved to WA thinking I had the marks and missed out by 0.5 of a mark. And then I was like, all right, well, I'll go back to Brisbane. I'll do another year and I'll get smarter. I'll get so smart that every university in Australia will want me. So I went back and I did another year, you know. So through all of this craziness and through all of these broken relationships and it's interesting now some people would describe me as aggressive and some a lot of people would say I'm not aggressive. Anyone that knew me in my 20s would probably describe me as aggressive. Like if someone looked at me the wrong way, um, <laughs> no, that's an exaggeration. If someone pushed me or did something that I considered to be against my values or against hurt someone else. Like I came down rock hard. I was like, I could yell, I could push them away. I could just cut off the friendship. Like I, it was not a problem for me to cut ties with people and move on. And I think that's been a really consistent in my life is just letting go of people that I really care about and just letting them walk out of my life. Mm. And just being okay with that. So sorry to anyone that's listening to this that's been involved in that kind of hurricane as people describe it. I only pushed away because I cared so much Hmm. and I only thought you were going to hurt me. So when you're talking about acting out, obviously there's the drinking, there's the pushing people away, but there's a lot of other ways that that you act out. What would you say was probably your most out there moment? (laughs) Big shout out to Lisa here. You'll remember this one. Um, Would be when I stole my parents' car. I went in, I got the keys and I got the star card. That was a fuel card that used to be able to go to the service station, tap it and you fill the car up and then go. Yeah, you didn't have to have any cash. So I took both of those. I took the star card and the car and I went traveling around Australia for three weeks and I used to stand at petrol stations and ask people to fill up their car and to give me cash and I would pay for it. And Lisa that I mentioned about, I went to her house. I said, let's go buy the groceries for you and you can give me cash. So we went to one of those service stations that was like a really big service station. She did a whole weekly, I think it was almost two weekly shop and gave me cash for it so that I could survive and get food and keep traveling. Yeah, that's probably when I think about it, that's a really good example of the stuff that other people might have looked at and thought, oh my God, look at her. Like, She's having heaps of fun and traveling and, you know, partying and doing all these things. But really, I'd just stolen a car and a star card and I was running. Mm. Yeah. What were you feeling while you were doing that? Really angry. I was so angry. I had so much anger as a child and an adolescent. Now I think it's determination. But back then I just, I just knew what was happening wasn't right. But I had no language around that. And I had no proof around that. I just knew it to my core. Like I knew life wasn't meant to be like this and that it could be better, but I couldn't find anyone to talk to about it. Like no one knew what happened behind our doors. No one, like our family looked like we were healthy, normal, well, you know, I went to private schools. I had fabulous things. I was always clothed. I was always fed. Like some of the teachers that will be listening to this will will just be jaw dropped. Mm. Yeah. So I was a highly reactive throughout my whole, that's the word I'd use to describe back then, angry and reactive. Understandable. <laughs> very, very understandable, else. Mm. But it, it was driven by shame. It was driven by shame. Like I still, as you can see, get teary when I talk about the abuse because I think, what did I do? Like what role did I have in that? Why wasn't I loved? Why did no one protect me? Why did no one see it? Where were the teachers? Where were my friends? Where were the adults? Why did everyone turn a blind eye? You know, so that anger came from like the real f- emotion there is pain and shame and fear. But 
what people saw was anger and determination and a fuck you attitude and a survival pack that was like, I'm going with or without you. <laughs> Come with me or don't, I don't care. I'm going. Yeah, well, you, you went and you went to a lot of places <laughs> and you, you did a lot of things. And I met a lot of people. I met amazing people on my journey like, oh, my God. That's when you say what's something from my childhood, like the people I've met on my journey, the people on the side of the road, the people sleeping under the park bench, the lawyers, the doctors, the cops, the, you know, like the amount of conversations I've had with police, you know, some of this stuff we can't go into unfortunately, but there has been a lot of involvement with police over the years. So especially when you said like with boyfriends and you pushed them away, were there like specific things you did that you can remember, like and actions that you would have taken? When I was at uni, I could be with my boyfriend and out of nowhere I would start to get these flashbacks. I would start crying or screaming, push my boyfriend away. Sometimes I'd even run out of the room. I just, I could not cope, but not everyone knew that. So people might have seen me as this really bubbly, outgoing girl, but the people that knew me really well knew that I was probably, they described me as really messed up, I reckon. And my now husband, at the time we were together at uni and I woke up one morning and said, I'm going to Perth. And he was just like, pardon? I was like, I'm out of here. I'll see you later. Got on a plane and I left, like broke his heart, just got on and left. And then when I was in Darwin, there's a few really key moments in my life of things that people have said that have changed me forever. And one of them was I worked for Pass Paley Pearls. So we worked at sea. We did shifts like either two weeks or five weeks out at sea. And there was 30 of us on a boat. You could see land, but they were islands, so not the mainland. And you did massive long days. And then you got to sit around and have yarns. So I was with a guy when I was out there on the boats. And he said to me, like, we were only just really casual. I wouldn't even say there was a massive relationship there. And he said to me, I was, you know, the only person that's hurting is you. He said, you can push me away. You can push the next guy away. We will go on and find other people to love but you keep doing this and you will never love anyone. And I was like, oh, my God, that is so true. And so I came back to Brisbane and I booked myself in for a sexual assault therapy course, a six-week course, and I went and I did that and that was heartbreaking, confronting, amazing, changed my life. Everything about that was a moment that I was like, thank God he said that and thank God I made that decision. And then I rang my husband now and was just said to him, thank you so much for everything you've done for me. He wasn't, we weren't together then, but I was just like, you will never know how safe you made me feel, how consistent you were in my world. Like he would describe it when we're at uni that he would be there and wonder where I was and I was just missing for three days. Mm. I would just go and I'd be partying somewhere and I wouldn't come back, you know. And But he was always consistent, always a rock. And it was when he and I got back together that I, that was another moment that I realised that he's getting back with me with all of my baggage, mm. all of it. He's not asking me to change. Not once did he say to me, you need to do this or you need to do that. He just stood in front of me and said, I love you. And I was like, how can I not love myself if this guy's standing here and says he loves me and how can I not be committed enough to meet him halfway? Like if he's able to love me and hold me and be with me with all of my shit, the least I can do is get some help. And so that's when I started therapy. I did two years of clinical therapy and and it it's made a huge difference in me feeling like I've healed from a lot of that abuse. I mean, it sounds like your husband was incredible. He is 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 and was sorry not was but back then was a good man in that moment. yeah <laughs> and it sounds like realizing that made you realize a fair few things about yourself is that correct yeah it made me realize that I was just running and hurting and that everyone else was trying to love me or be in relationship with me and all I was doing was looking at how to get out of a relationship so how did you besides you know coming to that realisation and, and, you know, doing the courses, how did you come to the point where you could accept that love? Over time, definitely over time, my husband and I have had so many conversations and I don't want to speak for him but he would probably say something along the lines of he could hear it but couldn't understand it until he saw it. So we were fortunate 
unfortunate, whatever language you want to use, I think it's fortunate because he couldn't understand it until he saw it. Where He saw an event one day that went from zero to 10 and ended up quite bad and, and he was like, is this how you grew up? And I said, yeah. He's like, no wonder you don't want to be around it. Like, no wonder you don't want that in your life. I don't want it in my life, you know. And so from that moment, that really helped. He, I guess, also saw my vulnerability there were days when I was doing therapy, you know, you talk about one step forwards, five step back. There were days I was found, he found me on the bathroom floor curled up in a ball, unable to talk, move. Makes me cry thinking about it. Like I couldn't move and nothing. I was like so broken. That feels so far away now. Like I don't have experiences like that anymore, but it was tough when I was doing the therapy and we were, it was like black tar coming out of me. Um, and also don't forget, like when I started this conversation, I said, I don't know if whatever happened to me happened. Like one of my girlfriends said to me, don't say that. You, people, will, people will wonder if it did happen. It did happen. We have evidence. But just for anyone out there that experiences any kind of abuse or assault, it is normal to, for it to be grey. It's okay for it to be grey and you don't have to know the facts. If you're going to the police and you're charging, it's a bit different. But just from a healing perspective, you don't need to know. Your body remembers. You can work with that. I've been able to do a lot of recovery work without having to know exactly in detail what happened to me, how often, when, how many times, you know, those sorts of things. And you said your husband could understand a bit more when he saw you being vulnerable. But, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like, being vulnerable is a pretty big step, like to be vulnerable with someone else. Was that something yeah. that came easy for you or was that something no. that you no, – So how did you come to that? <sighs> Over time, I think. The biggest thing for me was that he, in my eyes and what it looked like to me was he came back knowing everything. Like he, I had told him as much as I knew and he came back and was like, here I am <laughs> for the third time. Mm. Let's stay together and get married. And I was like, is this guy crazy or what? Like, you know, like I just remember thinking, how can he still be standing here with the amount I've pushed him away and the amount I've hurt him and the amount of like, absolutely not, I'm not staying in this, I'm out, tapping out of this relationship. So that was the most fundamental thing for me. From there, I just reminded myself of that moment all the time and it was baby, baby steps. And I would try something and he always was accepting and open and loving and, you know, is there still hard? Like we work on our marriage all the time. And a lot of people say to me, God, you and, you and Flinny, you're so tight. And I'm like, we're tight because we work on it. Mm. We're tight because we value it and we're tight because it's a priority. Like, you know, when you hear the rest of this story, we have been through so much adversity together and the only thing that gets us through is the communication piece and the talking about it and the understanding that we walk in the world differently and that is okay. We don't have to do it the same way. What sort of things do you do to work on it? We chat and we have date night. So often we'll do something like, we'll, so for example, with the kids, we had three young kids in about three and a half years. And so that was challenging. And we just sat down every Friday night and would say, what's going well for you? What's not going well? And that's not a criticism when, he, you know, if he says to me, this isn't going well, or I say to him, look, I'm really struggling that you're not cooking at the moment. That's not saying that he's doing something wrong. I'm saying how I'm feeling what's happening for me. And then we talk about, well, what are we going to work on for the next two weeks? And they're kind of three of our go-to questions. The other one is, where are you at relationally? We always ask this, like, where are you at with sex? Where are you at with connection? What else do we need to be doing on our relationship? That doesn't mean they're always in the green. <laughs> yeah. Often they're in the red mm -hmm. and that's when it gets brought up. And it's like, we traffic light and he says, I'm in the red or I'll say, I'm in the red in that space. So, how do we get it from the red to the orange? Like, we don't need to get to green right now, but just how do we get back to orange? And really looking at each other, you know, seeing each other, doing the three-second look where you actually stop and acknowledge them in the morning. It is so easy to walk past and say, hey, how you going? How did you sleep? Or whatever, you know. Our first conversation with each other every single morning is asking about the other person, both of us. We never not ask that. Mm. It's always how did you sleep or how's your morning been so far or, you know, how are you feeling this morning? Like it's always other focused and we're really, we work really hard on that. So you were working on yourself, 
you were working potentially, I don't know, time-wise, but it sounds like Flinny was around and being a rock. Flinny has always been around. <laughs> that guy, I don't know what animal do you describe that is always there mm. and so solid. That guy has always been there. Yeah. Even when I was a long way away, he has always kept a thread alive. Mm. Always. So that's going on. We've been on the roller coaster ride. It's nowhere near done. What happened next? What next curveball was thrown your way? I would say probably when I was going through that first six-week course that I told you about, it may have been 12 weeks. Anyone that doesn't know me, my numbers are really average, okay? So when I say six, I might mean 25. Can we just honor that space? So doing that six-week course and I would say that's one of the only times in my life I felt depression. And I just found it really hard to get out of bed. That was when I'd come back to Brisbane and I was studying to get smarter, to do forensic psych and work with cops and work as a criminal profiler. But I just, I started to find it really hard to get out of bed and I I went to the doctors and the doctor said, we think you're slipping into depression. I was like, give me three weeks. And they're like, oh, let's talk about some medication. I said, no, like, give me three weeks and I'll come back in and, and let's see what I can do in three weeks. And I walked out that doctor's appointment and I quit university. I quit my job. I got a new job and I did a new course. And I was like, you know what? If this isn't working, change the environment. Like that's one thing I know to be true for me is that when things are tough, a change of environment can really be like a new start, just like a jump start really. And during that time, something really interesting happened. My family had been involved in this, what I call a cult at the time. I don't know if it is or not. I'm I'm talking to someone this afternoon that works in that area. So I'll definitely be having that conversation with them. And they had asked me if I wanted to come and take part in this weekend with what I call the cult. And I was like, no way, no way would I do that. And this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks and and I was like, no, no, no. Then all of a sudden I got this letter in the mail that said, you have been awarded a scholarship to this weekend. And I was like, maybe I should go. Not for me so I can work out what they do. Remember I was studying psychology at this time. So I was like, I, and then I started to get intrigued, right? I was like, I'm definitely going to go and I'm going to find out what's going on. So off I go, travel up in my little barina, up this mountain all the way to the top, park the car, get my bag out, walk in and they're like, can we please have your keys and your phone? And I was like, nah, not so sure about that. And they're like, no, you can't come in without signing this disclaimer, give me your keys and your phone. And I was like, what if I want to go somewhere? And they're like, you absolutely can leave. And I was like, okay. So I go in and they start doing what I would call experimental therapy. I'm not sure it had any scientific backing at the time. Just what you imagine. You sit in a big circle and someone steps up into the middle and they talk about their trauma. I was sitting there thinking this is really psychologically unsafe. Like I'm not sure that they know what they're doing and all of these people are here trusting what they're doing. And so they called me up and I was like, look, I'm not really into this. And then they started baiting me and they started pushing me and then they covered me in a blanket and pinned me down. And I was like, when we talk about that alley cat, imagine an alley cat that's cornered with three dogs staring at it and what do you think it's going to do? Like I lost my shit. And so after that event, I walked up to the head person. I said, give me my keys. I'm out of here. He's like, you can't go. And I was like, watch me. And he's like, you're not going anywhere. And I was like, fucking hell. And so I then was like, okay, you've been in this situation before. You can survive this. Keep a low profile, start to watch, observe. Then they get naked and start running through the bush. (laughs) I didn't get naked. I was the only person that didn't get naked. And they come up to me with the balls to say, are you okay? I was like, what do you think? Am I okay? Like, I'm not sure if you guys are reading this scenario and this situation very well, but I want to get out of here and you're not letting me go anywhere and you have just re-traumatized me and now you want me to get naked with people I don't know. Like, this is not okay. Last day, last session, everyone's hugging and kissing and writing letters and someone, one of the leaders come up to me and they go, we've brought your abusers up here. How are you going to be when you see them? And I said, I'll fucking kill them. And they said, yep, we didn't think you were ready to see them. We better just give us a minute. And they went, and that 
I was just like, this is so psychologically unsafe. And this is how I think people end up in really bad situations because I was vulnerable. I'd already done three years of psychology. I already came in with some smarts, right, to be educated enough to know that what was happening up here wasn't scientifically backed. There was no evidence for it. People were doing things that potentially we know in industry are not helpful or not okay. Not everyone has that. And so coming into a situation like that, being extremely vulnerable, wanting to heal can have a huge impact on what happens next in your life. Mm-hmm. So that's my cold experience. They never asked me to come back. They let you out and they just got the abusers to go away? Yeah, I went, yeah, they got them to go away. One star review? (laughs) (laughs) How God, I wish Google was around back then. Probably was. I didn't have access to it. Oh, yeah. Cold or not cold, it was a very unsafe experience and just, you know, it's a really good example of where I was really clear on what my boundaries were and no one was listening. Again, Mm. again, I could shout from the hilltops and no one could hear me. I'm glad you got out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that they didn't bring my abusers into the room. Yeah. Otherwise, I might be doing one of those podcasts where I'm talking to someone in prison. Like- <laughs> Absolutely. There are so many moments of my life that I think, how did I escape prison? Like, seriously, I stand before you today and I honestly put my hand on my heart and think, God, I was lucky. Mm. I was so lucky. I had really good people in my life. I was very fortunate to have a fork in the road and someone helped guide me onto the right fork because there are so many moments I can think of. Like I had a hitman ask me if he could kill the person that did this stuff to me. I was like, you're joking. He's like, nope, this is how much it will cost you. Would you like me to do it? I was like, no, no, I'm angry, but I'm not that angry. (laughs) And I wish them well in their life. Like they're not in my life now. I don't need them to be, but I don't need them killed. (laughs) Like this is what I mean. I've met. So many different types of people on my journey and a lot of people have been highly protective. So I've heard lots of things about what people are prepared to do. Mm. I sold a car for 50 bucks one day. Yeah, I used to, yeah. And this is the stuff. I could give you a whole list of things that are really clear kind of pointers to say that, oh, this girl has experienced trauma. Something is vibrating in her world but no one saw it, Mm. I don't think. Maybe a few of you that are listening are like, no, we saw it. We saw it. (laughs) We didn't know what to do with it, but we saw it. You said that um, there were pivotal points that that turned you on your journey. You had people steering you. Are there any people you can, like, because I feel like we haven't really touched on that, like the the points and the people that have steered you in the right direction. So definitely my beautiful friend in Kidal that listened to me the day that I told him that I'd been abused and I didn't know if it was real or not. Um, Massive shout out to him and some of the boys in Kidal. They don't know. They would have just seen me as wild or whatever, but they really, really were there for me through those times. So thank you to them for that. The guy in Darwin that told me that, you know, I'm the only one that's missing out here. Like he will move on Every guy I'm with will move on and find love and I'm the only one that's left. And my husband who just, oh, do not have enough words for that. My therapist, absolutely. So they're kind of the pivotal people and I'm sure I've forgotten people. Also my mom, like my mom loved me and always said to me, I love you no matter what you do. And so that nurture that I was shown at such a young age in this chaos has made me the woman I am today. If I didn't have that nurture, if I didn't have that love, if I didn't have that unconditional love, I would 100% believe I would be in jail right now. I mean, that's not to say that those chapters are fully done. Like I think you'd be the first to say that that stuff has far-reaching repercussions, right? Like that that is still showing itself in, in present day. Yeah, less and less though I think is what I would like to say for anyone out there that's on the journey. Like I would say I am probably as healthy and as healed as I will probably get. Um, You can always do more work. I'm not saying I can't do more work. I definitely can do more work. But I feel like I've I've really looked at those chapters of my life and I've really taken some really gold nuggets from them and I've accepted that that is what I went through and it's made me who I am and that it's made me want to help other people. So if I hadn't have gone through that, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be wanting to do all the things that I'm doing today and wanting to help people. So there's been some really good things that have come out of it and being able to look back and see that. But the other really strong reason, my other really strong why is that I want to speak to everyone out there that has been through it and and say, as a little girl, I never knew that I was going to be okay. I never knew that I could grow up and have a life, a healthy, wholesome, loving, successful life because I didn't know anyone that had. And that was all my one wish. I used to pray all the time. Can you show me someone that is going through what I've been through that has made it? 
that isn't on the streets, that isn't in a rehab for drugs and alcohol, that isn't behind bars? Like, is it possible? And I want to stand here in front of everyone today and say it 100% is. Like, life can throw some pretty nasty curveballs at you and some massive adversity, but the human will to survive is phenomenal. And whenever you feel like you have a dark day or a bad day or a sad day, know that you've gotten this far. You've made it to today. Going through the abuse is so hard. You can make a recovery from it and you can heal from it. You know, as a sexual assault therapist, and working in domestic violence and working with kids in trauma, I used to say that to kids all the time, like we can't change your past but you can heal and let's look at what that journey looks like for you personally. When sexual assault survivors speak out, they help change the culture that enables it. I hope this conversation has played a tiny role in that space. I want to read you an extract from Blue Knot Foundation website that speaks to someone who may have experienced childhood family violence. Caring for yourself is often challenging for people who have experienced complex trauma. That's because you are harmed by another person. Sometimes it's done on purpose, and at other times it happens because that other person had their own issues which stopped them from caring for you. When an adult neglects, hits, insults, abuses, or ignores a child, that child starts to believe that they aren't worth much. Often this happens time and time again. This often means that the child grows up believing that they don't deserve to be loved or cared for, that they are unlovable or worthless. That adult, who the child becomes, can feel worthless too. Learning to care for yourself if you're a survivor means seeing yourself in a different way. It means seeing yourself as a person who deserves to feel comfortable, safe and worthwhile. When I tell my story, people ask, what did I do that helped? How did I end up where I am today? There is no simple answer to this. It involved a number of things at different stages in my life, from long-term therapy, the strong friendship groups that I had, police involvement, AVO, my mum and I going into hiding for a number of months, moving from hotel to hotel so no one could find us. A huge amount of support from my husband who played the biggest role in my healing journey. I've also removed myself from toxic situations and relationships. The ones that brought out the worst in me and where I was being harmed. I've worked really hard to identify and replace old coping strategies with new constructive ones. And exercise has been a consistent in my adult life. Most importantly... I started to identify the voice inside my head that told me I was not good enough. I've been able to work on this and find another, kinder way to talk to myself. Everyone is unique in their recovery and what works for one person may not work for the next. I truly believe people can heal from trauma. And research shows us that neuroplasticity is possible and that our brains can change right throughout our life. I do want to take a short moment to talk to you guys about post-traumatic growth, a concept where it is possible to develop beyond recovery. Two psychologists from the University of Carolina coined the term post-traumatic growth in the mid-90s. It refers to the positive change in which a person develops greater inner strength as a result of their journey going through trauma. The recovery journey can transform a person's reactions, their worldviews, their response to future stress and adversity. When a person experiences post-traumatic growth, they appreciate their life more fully, build on their strengths and acknowledge them as well as forge deeper relationships and plan more for a fulfilled future. If you're a survivor or if you're supporting a survivor, the concept of post-traumatic growth may seem unachievable at the moment, but knowing that it is possible can also be really empowering. My dream is two things. I want to stop family violence in Australia and I want to support to build a trauma-informed world. Let's help society understand how common trauma is and learn more about the way trauma affects our well-being and that of our families and our communities. 
Thank you for taking the time today to listen to my story. And I hope I can create a ripple effect of hope. I'm not sure if you will get excited or have a massive sigh when I let you know we've just started. Next week will be the follow-up of part two of my story. The good news is there is only a part one and two. So tune in next Monday for the next chapter. I will see you then. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.